Find out what's on in our city on ORFM's Dunedin Community Notice Board. Go to oar.org.nz and look for the link. You're one click away from up-to-date community event listings and you can post your own notices free of charge. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about social and emotional learning and why relationships are at the heart of successful behaviour change. And for anyone thinking, hey, she often talks about relationships. Well, that's because they are the single biggest predictor of well-being throughout your entire life. My guest today is Dr. Sue Rafi, psychologist, academic, author, social activist and speaker. Sue works at universities in the UK and Australia and is a member of the advisory board of the Carnegie Centre of Excellence for Mental Health in Schools. Sue's got a long history in well-being work and as an advocate for students. Her books are on teachers' all-time favourite book lists. And that's not surprising when you know they include titles like The New Teacher's Survival Guide to Behaviour and Changing Behaviour in Schools. For Sue, relationships are the key to changing behaviour. Sue's also the developer of Circle Solutions, her approach to embedding social and emotional learning in schools. During her 17 years in Australia, she founded the Wellbeing Australia Network and developed the Aboriginal Girls Circle, a program for Indigenous young women based on the Circle Solutions principles. And this program is helping the girls develop healthy relationships, resilience and student responsibility. Now back in the UK, Sue is focused on growing great schools worldwide, the organisation she's working through to address whole child, whole school well-being, including the well-being of teachers. Sue is also a hugely productive writer with three new books out in 2018. Sue, welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. We're delighted to have you with us. It's nice to be talking to you, Denise. Now, Sue, um, I know that you care so much about relationships and about well-being and children in school. So tell me a bit about, tell me a bit about that and why it's so important to you. Well, I think it's sort of built in in the history of my career, really. I mean, all of my career has been in education of one sort or another. But I started off um, as a teacher working with little kids for a couple of years. I learned a lot from that. And then I worked with kids who were challenging, who were mostly out of school because they had emotional, behavioural, social difficulties. And they taught me a lot about the sorts of things that had happened to them and the sorts of things that they needed. And I then became an educational psychologist, did that for quite a long time, and then by accident found myself as an academic. So um, as part of being an academic, I've researched and written, and you always read a lot when you write, um, around um, what can we do for those kids who are struggling with all sorts of adversities um, to actually ensure that they have a little bit of well-being in their lives, things are better for them. and. The research is fairly clear that the overridingly important thing is relationships um, and the quality of relationships, both the relationships that they're actually able to have with the immediate people in their world, um, but also learning themselves about relationships. The quality of our relationships either makes our lives 
much better, more positive, we're more resilient, we are more able to enjoy our existence, or they're so bad it makes our lives really miserable. And so with the, with the kids that you were working with who were out of school or, you know, the challenging trouble kids, if in those cases, I, I guess, were dysfunctional relationships at home a key part of the problem for those kids? Um, in some, in some uh, instances, yes, that's true. But in a way, it's much broader than that. I would say that a large number of those kids, high proportion, had experienced loss of one sort or another. Uh-huh. Um, they had um, found themselves feeling rejected, maybe because of a family breakdown, because of... Um, maybe a bereavement, maybe violence in the family where they felt it was much more important for them to be at home and to make sure that things were okay with their mum than to go, go to school. But, of course, the other side of that is if the relationships in schools aren't um, positive, nurturing and flexible, then those kids are actually going to experience, again, um, rejection and difficulties with school. We have to think differently about what we're providing in education for those kids. Hmm. And so for you, in terms of thinking differently about that, it's around how do we put relationships at the centre of what we do? Absolutely. I mean, I did a bit of work for the um, Australian um, federal government on um, scoping study um, for student well-being, approaches to student well-being. And as part of that, it became fairly clear that when well-being is at the core of what happens at school, it's at the heart of school things, um, relationships, um, caring, high expectations as well. You don't give up on anybody. Then you get everything else follows. You get better, more pro-social behaviour, get better student engagement, which means that you get better outcomes academic outcomes for everyone you get um, better mental health and resilience and you get um, teachers who are happier in their jobs and they're more likely to stay in their jobs and we know that we have a big problem with teacher attrition lots of teachers leave because I think a lot of it's because they wanted to they want to care they want to be creative and the school system makes it difficult for them to do that well I think it's interesting you know you talk about the importance of the of, of relationships in schools and we know we know in our work from from people like John Hattie's Visible Learning that the students teacher relationship has one of the bigger effect sizes on achievement and and it's interesting I find a lot of people a lot of people kind of mention it but but then don't go any further and I think it's because oh yeah the student teacher relationship is really important but a lot of people feel it's like a black box that they don't know how to how to enhance or change that. And I know your work really has been about opening up the black box and giving people some of the skills to be able to build relationship. Um, and I know, I, I guess I see the Aspire principles that you've developed as fitting in there. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. In 2012, I um, edited a book called Positive Relationships, Evidence-Based Practice Across the World. And there were 17 chapters in that book. It was published by Springer. And there are some similarities within all those relationships, whether they're couple relationships, parent-child relationships, teacher-pupil relationships. 
all of the different ones, there are some things that are um, similar. And what I've done with Aspire is to encapsulate those things that actually make relationships work and are healthy. And um, Aspire stands for, A is for agency, which is that you don't, um, you don't have relationships that are healthy if it's one person making the decisions all the time or one person having the control all the time. And we know from positive psychology that self-determination is one of the factors of uh, authentic well-being. For those not familiar with the term, self-determination theory says that all humans need autonomy or freedom in order to thrive, along with needs for competence and relatedness. It's about um, giving people choices, helping them have a say in what is of concern to them. The second one is safety. Nobody is, um, wants to be in a relationship that quite simply isn't safe, whether that's safe psychologically or safe physically. And um, there are ways in which you can make relationships safe, first of all, by, not, um, by allowing mistakes in school for a start, that nobody is, um, is thought to be um, consider that they're you know, not good enough if they make a mistake. So mistakes need to be threaded through everything that happens. That's just one example. The um, P is for positivity, and that's using so much of what we know from positive psychology. It's about having a solution-focused approach. So it's not about what do we want to get rid of. It's what do we want to see, what do we want to happen. It's having strengths-based language and seeking and identifying strengths, not just for the young people themselves, but for other people. And I know we don't have time to do this, but I could give so many examples of really wonderful strengths-based activities. I will give you one. Oh, come on. Give us one or two. Oh, this is why you're here. I've got so many good ones. Um, it's a teacher on, on, um, on a jar, in a jar on her desk. She has a, a whole load of spectacles. She's pushed out the... Um, the lenses, so she just has the frames, and they all have a label. So they've got the good le- listening glasses and the um, the good leadership specs, and there's a, there's about it's about eight or ten of them. And she gives um, a, a student uh, who is demonstrating one of those um, strengths the glasses to wear for either the morning or the afternoon. And their job then is to look through these perspective glasses to identify other students who are demonstrating the same strength. So it's students looking out for strengths for students. I mean, I just think that's lovely. Because so often at the school, people are actually picking up on deficits and what kids can't do and differences. So for me, that's really important that we have a strengths-based. I'm writing this down, Sue, because I think, you know, I I do a lot of work with strengths, and we're always looking for ways to encourage strength spotting. And you want to do it in a way that's fun and practical. And having actually having the specs is... um, I'm imagining they look like an Elton John glasses collection. Very big, yes. Yeah. It's lovely. And the other one in positivity, I think, is, is the importance of laughter, of shared healthy laughter and of play. In Circle Solutions, which is my framework for social and emotional learning, which is based in the Aspire principle. Um, oh, and by the way, that activity is in the book, Circle Solutions for Student Wellbeing, uh, along with a lot of other ones. Um, The importance of play is often underestimated and we need to revisit play for our young people because if they can't learn to play, they can't learn to develop empathy. 
there's a load of really good reasons on the mental health front for, for bringing play back in to school to some extent or another. Um, the I hang on, can is, we come, and come back a sec, she says. I'm just loving the play piece because I think we really have um, underestimated it. And I, I, I feel very fortunate that when my son was at kindergarten, you know, he was one of those boys who never wanted to be inside and, and always played outside. And the kindergarten teacher took me aside one day and she said, I just want you to know the quality of what he's doing outside and he and his friends had this giant roll of really thick brown paper that they would unroll and it was about 15 feet long and they created a universe and drawn it on it and they all had different roles in the universe and they would play and then at the end of the day they'd roll it up and they would put it away and then they'd take it out the next day and she said Denise the the level of sophistication of them assigning the roles, agreeing to them, changing them from day to day, and the and she said even the oral language required to negotiate and agree all this, as well as conceptually what they're doing, as well as learning how to play nicely with each other. She just said there's there's really invaluable stuff happening here. Absolutely. Look at the number of things you just raised in that, in that little scenario. Creativity, problem solving, social skills, um, collaboration, target setting. I mean, there are so many things. And what we do in schools to a great extent, and I think, I mean, my, my experience has been in Australia for a long time and I'm now back in the UK. And in the UK, it's particularly difficult at the moment because so often kids are sort of told, you know, don't ask questions, this is what you have to do, this is the answer, and you've got to get it right. It's very, very didactic learning in lots of, um, in lots of schools. And what we need, and that comes back to the agency and Aspire, is Socratic learning. We need to actually encourage kids to be able to think through some of the issues. Yes, they do know, need to know some facts, but if we're actually growing a generation of kids who can't critique, who can't create, who can't innovate, then our society in the future is going to suffer as a basis of that. So, okay, so we're on to I for inclusion. inclusion. We know that um, there's a number of people now saying that a sense of belonging is as important to psychological health as food and shelter really important that we feel that we belong and there are two sort of types of belonging there's inclusive belonging in which everyone is valued everyone is welcomed it's an open frame um, and then there's exclusive belonging which is basically only me and my gang and you have to abide by a certain uh, number of rules and expectations to be in that gang and what we need is inclusive belonging in schools and in society, in fact, so that people are valued because they're human beings and because their different um, strengths or characters or quirkiness is valued for what it is. And in the work that I do, I get kids uh, and teachers to mix up all the time. So they talk to people outside of their usual social groups and it breaks down barriers and they suddenly find that, oh, my goodness, we have things in common. Two things pop into my head there. One was in the work that I was doing on strengths in schools here in New Zealand, and we were looking at strengths for 
um, to see the impact they would have on engagement and well-being and, and also relatedness. But one of the things that, um, that teachers commented on, a, a lot of the teachers and students commented to us that when they were, when the class was focused on noticing what was right with each other and noticing their strengths, it actually resulted in a more inclusive environment because rather than drawing the typical lines of you're this and not that, they were able to go, oh yeah, but you're really creative and you're this and, and able, being able to see the good in people rather than drawing some very hard lines. Absolutely. I mean, although I've separated out all of those letters into sort of different acronyms, they quite clearly interact and overlap with each other. And I think that put them all together and you've actually got a framework for not only positive relationships, but also whole school well-being. Mm. And you can look at how you might fit all of those in, in everywhere. After inclusion comes respect. And that's not only respect for individuals, which is about listening to what they have to say rather than jumping in with judgment, but it's also having respect for culture because so much of what happens happens with a white Anglo view of the world, so many of the books that have been written, and a lot of the work that I've done has been with Aboriginal um, communities in Australia. And some of the things that come out from America just don't fit with Aboriginal communities because they're, com you know, they're, they're communitarian rather than individualistic. It's a, just a different approach. And one of the things that was very positive about that is that we worked closely with the um, Aboriginal leaders in the communities. Uh, and we didn't want to come in and impose anything. And the things that they said, to us then was that it fits with their culture, it's congruent with their culture, so they're comfortable with it. But the last one is equity. And I started off with, um, with equality because I know that um, the more, clo the closer people are with each other, um, the, the societies where there's least gap between the haves and the have-nots have greater well-being for all. Hmm. So um, when you have you know, privileges for one section and or particularly a small section and then um, the rest of the, um, the society is struggling with adversity, what happens is that you actually have well-being um, lower for everybody. You get more crime, you get more all sorts of things. But I moved the equality to equity because I thought equality has the view that you treat everyone the same and I think equity is a way of saying that you treat people according to their needs so that you have to be flexible in some ways. And in the work that I do on social and emotional learning, I ask the teachers to be part of doing what ev everything that the students do. And they say themselves that it breaks down barriers and they get to know their students better mm -hmm. and it changes the atmosphere in their classes. So I know that this stuff works. You need to have a positive social environment for learning to take place well. And that's what Aspire does. At least I think it does. <laughs> but they, but they, you know, even as we're talking, I can hear, um, I can hear the connections. I mean, when we talk about respect, I'm bouncing straight back to safety and trust, and how if if I feel there's an environment where I'm respected, I feel much safer, and then I'm probably much more likely to to be willing to exercise my agency and to say something. And absolutely. 
We know that you're changing behavior in schools, which is all about relationships, is one of my favorite books. And I know you've got some more coming out this year. So tell me about those. Right. Well, the last, um, well, there's, there's three things that are around at the moment. One is the well-being stories for um, students between the ages of nine and 13. And there's six stories that all, all deal with um, particular issues that are important to that age group. But the important thing is within those stories, there's characters representing different sorts of positive and negative thinking. And there is a teacher toolkit for each of those stories and a family toolkit. The other books are um, the primary uh, behavior cookbook. And that's already out uh, and available on Amazon and other places. And the secondary behavior cookbook comes out in September this year. So now these cookbooks, the primary cookbook, tell us about the, the, the recipes are for what? Right. Well, behavior is important. We're not talking about making cakes here. The first part of the books are both about, are both about the importance of the oven. If you don't have the emotional climate right, it's the same as having an oven and putting things in to bake. You don't put it in, in a warm enough oven and for a long enough time, you won't get any results. So it's important that the environment is right. And there's a whole big section in the book about what you do about um, building positive relationships. So it's very practical, very down to earth. And then there are, in the primary book, there are 40. And in the secondary book, there are 50, what I call recipes. And each of the recipes deals with a particular sort of difficult behavior it's all divided into sections so the first one is settling to work there's another one on social interactions and the last section sections are about emotional distress and um, behaviors of special concern and what it says in each of those recipes is um, a section on what do you need to know what sorts of things do you need to find out before you actually jump to judgment about what you do when that's when that's happening And then there's a section which is called Today in the Classroom. What might you do when that is actually happening? And then the last section is um, longer-term change. What actually might make a difference over time? And at the front of the book, there's a whole load of starred ingredients because in recipes in cookbooks, there's always the same ingredients that you put into lots of different recipes. So there's... um, there's different sorts of things that we, that we go into detail at the front of the book and then they're just starred in the recipes. So give us an example of a couple of starred ingredients. I'm not sure if it's starred or not, but it's certainly strengths-based languages all over the place. And then there's one about co-regulation in which you actually work with a young person to help them regulate their behaviour. Um, there's another one, again, about um, being aware of acknowledging emotion when a young person is um is exploding in some way um the first thing you do rather than actually say you've got to stop this now is you acknowledge you acknowledge the emotion that's underpinning that so you just say you're really really upset and then you ask them to do something like you know perhaps you'd like to step outside for a moment just to calm down because interrogating that is a hiding to nothing. Taking it personally is a hiding to nothing. It doesn't work. And I think teachers really need to know the practical down-to-earth tools that are available to them that will actually help them in situations like that. I mean, another simple one is they don't invade their space. 
because that would trigger the amygdala and it will be it will be interpreted as a threat oh wow so 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 there's all these basic strategies which aren't plucked out of thin air but based on sound psychological research and evidence and years and years of experience and so what you've got is a whole the book is a collection of the kind of situations that teachers find themselves with in their classrooms and a very sound approach to thinking about them understanding them and then strategies to actually address them absolutely i mean it's um i've I've moved away a lot of the time with behavior in schools people use a behaviorist model with behave with with um, reward and sanctions and although that might work for youngsters who are um, mostly having it okay, you know, it, it might be effective. But with, with young people who are struggling with, with adversities of one sort or another, they won't give a monkeys. There's no point in using those sorts of strategies. You've got to find something different. You've got to have different conversations with them. You've got to um, use emotional literacy in spades, not just for the young person themselves, but also um, for your own sense of competence as a teacher. I think a lot of times teachers feel at a loss to know what to do in some mm-hmm. situations. And what I've tried to do in the book is give them um, ideas of things they might try and suggest, you know, try this for maybe five or six times before you give it up as, you know, as something that doesn't work. So... I want to dedicate a whole interview to these recipes for dealing with difficult behaviour for primary and secondary schools. I know lots of teachers will be really interested. Now, time is ticking on. The last two questions. If you could only do one thing to help people for the rest of your life, what would it be? And I'm saying to help people's well-being, really. I mean, I think this is really, really tough one because... I don't think it exists in one thing. I think that if I could generate enough of a movement that will have an influence and impact on the politicians who make decisions about what happens in education, that would be what I would do. In fact, I'm... You are doing that. That's what you are doing. I'm doing that. And there's many different ways that I can find, really. Yeah, yeah. And what's your last question? What's your go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being whenever you feel frustrated or down? Well, apart from hugs from my nearest and dearest, which are always good for you, and I would actually say a nice, warm, smelly bath. But in this weather, uh, which is, you know, the hottest weather we've known, that's not going to happen. I think it's basically two positive psychology strategies, um, which I live with, really. One is, um, one is gratitude. I am phenomenally grateful for everything in my life. You know, from the fact that I can walk walk from one side of a room to another when I've spent time with people with MS who can't do that. That I go to a concert and I can hear this absolutely amazing, amazing music. That I've got roses in my garden that just lift my spirits. So it's partly about just having gratitude, but it's also with that a bit of mindfulness. So just stopping and actually being um, around knowing that I have friends like you and all over the world and and roses in my garden. Thank you, Sue. That's lovely. 
I'm talking to Sue from the UK and I hope this is a lovely end to your day, Sue, because it's been a wonderful start to my day to actually get to chat with you. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Denise. Thanks to Sue for sharing the Aspire principles with us. Just to remind you, Aspire stands for Agency Safety, Positivity, Inclusion, Respect and Equity. If you want to learn more, you can go to Sue's website, suroffy.com, for books and articles on Aspire, Circle Solutions, or to have a look at Sue's treasure trove of publications. And we'll certainly plan another interview with Sue on her recipes for dealing with challenging behaviour in schools. Sue also shared with us her strategies for boosting her own well-being, and you can try those too. Hug the people you love, slow down and notice what's around you, and be grateful for the good things you notice in your day. Even small good things can make a big difference in our days. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to listen to a podcast of this show, you can find it on or.org.nz or at nziwr.co.nz. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their well-being and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz. Find out what's on in our city on ORFM's Dunedin Community Notice Board. Go to oar.org.nz and look for the link. You're one click away from up-to-date community event listings and you can post your own notices free of charge. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.